Welcome to episode 18 of the Rescue Summer Mindset Podcast. I'm Cody Wright. So after thinking it over the weekend, I decided to go with a Tuesday and Tuesday and Friday podcast release date. This is kind of switching up from the normal Monday, Wednesday, Thursday release date. I figured I should just make the episodes slightly longer than they were and take out a, a day. So what I'll do is probably throw in some Q&As in between episodes just kind of randomly. I'll just throw them in whenever I get a good question or a few questions pop in at once. So I had a few topics I wanted to run through today with you all. And the first one is going to be on... Well, a few days ago, I was having a conversation or I guess a text conversation on Instagram through direct messages. And... This is something I get a lot from a lot of people. Um, basically, the student was in swimmer school. He ended up getting medically discharged and was reassigned to a new unit. And this new unit is kind of far from a a pool, and there's no pool on base. And he does not have a car. He didn't have a car either. So basically... He's asking me if there's aren't if there were any substitutes for training water confidence out of the pool. And this seems to be like an issue with a lot of people, but there really isn't a substitute for water confidence if you don't have a pool. So what I told him was you're gonna have to either find someone who's going to the pool a lot, find someone who can give you a ride, or you can get an Uber. Just have an Uber drive you to the pool twice a week and just spend however long you have to in the pool. So spend like an extra hour each day in the pool and just don't go as many times throughout the week. But there is not a substitute. Like you have to find a way to get to a pool and get your training in. And if you don't, if you don't do that, you're, you're going to fail out of school. Like you have no chance of passing rescue summer school. If you are not getting in the pool at least four times, three to four times a week. And three times if you're like, if you're already kind of a stud in the water. And if you're not, I mean, I was going four to five times a week because I'm not necessarily like a stud in the water. I had a decent amount of water confidence, but I still knew I had to get in there way more often than someone who grew up playing water polo or something like that. So I'm going to move on now to a kind of a mindset topic. So this kind of like, basically what I want to talk about is this kind of, I guess, like a theory I came up with, or, and I talk about a bit in the book, I think, in my book, The Rescue Summer Mindset, and then I did a blog post on it a few months ago. But it's called, the theory is basically, I'll call it your breaking point. But what I think, this is kind of coming back to what instructors do to get candidates to fail or to test a candidate's kind of test his breaking point and see where, where he's likely to quit and see if they can get him to get a, or her, get them to quit. So I think that initially, maybe the first two to three weeks, instructors are just kind of randomly going through the motions, having to do hard workouts and just kind of seeing who's going to quit easily. So you're kind of like picking off people who are, who had no chance from the get go. So you might see a lot of people quit in the first two to three weeks, but those people really don't have much of a chance at all just because their mindset is not there. And maybe they can 
go away and, and practice getting their, their mind right and getting in that, that position they need to be in. But for whatever reason, during this first cycle, they're out. So those two to three weeks go by and you probably see like 40 to 50% of the class kind of drop out, fail or quit. Usually it's just like failing, not failing. It's usually quitting and then failing comes later. But once you get that initial kind of bunch of people to fail out, your class size drops down significantly. So maybe you start with 20, so you start with 20 people in your class, say eight people drop out in those first two to three weeks. So you're down to 12. So right there, I mean, when you have 20 people and let's say there's like, you're dealing with four to five instructors per day, those instructors are going to have a hard time kind of memorizing everyone's names and they're not really going to take the time to get to know everyone because they know a lot of the students are going to quit. So they just go through the motions, make everything hard, yell at you, make you do water confidence drills and see who's going to quit. And after that initial period, the instructors have had some time to kind of put some names to faces and figure out who's kind of strong in certain areas, who's weak, who's the lead, kind of the leader of the group, who's straggling, who's kind of cheating, cutting corners, and they, they kind of figure it out. And they start to get to know like your personality and what makes you kind of what makes you kind of get closer to that breaking point and they kind of they just learn those little subtle details about you. So when you get to that point, the instructors can then kind of find those cracks and really just like kind of work into those and see if if they can really push you to quit. And I think a lot of times students or instructors will take a few days and single out a, a candidate, say like week eight or nine the instructors will maybe they come together maybe they don't but they like i said this is a theory they come together and just they would say something like hey today we're gonna push cody and we're gonna yell at him we're gonna make him kind of we're gonna get him to that breaking point to see if he is gonna quit or if he's just gonna kind of get through it and kind of push through And I think I'm going to use, I guess, like an anecdotal example of one of the, a time that this happened to me, and you can kind of judge for yourself. Like I said, it's a theory, and I think, I think it's pretty accurate. And if you treat it like this, if you're getting singled out at some point during school, or if it's like a week straight of like getting yelled at and it feels like the instructors hate you, just think about this theory, and maybe it'll help you kind of push through. So this is like, I want to say week maybe week nine of a school it's whatever week the one man test is so we had i'm trying to think of the dates this was right around fourth of july weekend so we had a four-day weekend so we got off of training on like a friday afternoon i think we got out like a couple hours early and then we all went to the beach on I think that's Saturday and then we kind of hung out and then on Sunday I drove home to my parents' house which is about four hours away in Northern Virginia and I spent the rest of the weekend so Sunday, Monday and then half of Tuesday hanging out and just doing like 4th of July stuff so like barbecues we went for a hike in the Appalachian Mountains for like half a day I think on Monday and then so a lot of just not working out and then Tuesday kind of afternoon, evening I drove 
back to Elizabeth City, where the A school is. And we started class on Wednesday morning. And driving back, I was kind of dreading. I was, even though it was a short week, I was absolutely dreading having to go back to Elizabeth City because I knew I'd kind of slacked off that weekend. And like, and four days off while you're in the middle of this really grueling training is a lot. Four days will just kind of throw you out of whack. Maybe you'll eat a little too much, not exercise enough, and you're going to come back and you're not going to feel like you did that week before. You're going to feel really slow, not lackadaisical, but just out of it. Probably going to feel sick because you're going to be like working extra hard for those couple days trying to work all those toxins out of your system. So I get back on Wednesday morning and we set up the PT grinder and we start our workout. So we're doing like the typical, it's like a CrossFit style workout for our PT. So we were doing like push-ups, pull-ups, and then we do like some sort of weighted exercise with like a barbell or we'd use, we'd use kettlebells every once in a while. So we're doing stuff like that. And then we do like some sort of run. So we were doing, I think basically they're called train backs or fencing backs, I think now. But we would run from the PT grinder to this fence. That It's a fence that kind of separates the schoolhouse from the, the airport or the air station side of the base. So maybe it's maybe out to the fence and back is around 300 meters, maybe a little farther, maybe 400 meters. So no, it's probably, it's probably like 300 meters. So you, you run out and back. And you're kind of smoked. And the instructors use that fence in back as like like a punishment almost. So if you're in the middle of your workout, the instructors have you stop to grab some water in between sets. And someone like grabs their water the wrong way. Or someone's just kind of like looking like they're slacking off. The instructors will just yell, fence in back, go. And everyone has to just drop what they're doing and run to the fence. And you're sprinting the whole time. So you're like, you're going all out. So you sprint to the fence, sprint back. And then you resume whatever you're doing. And it's just a form of punishment the instructors use all the time. And I mean, you'll do, you'll do it a million times while you're on the grinder in A school. So we're in the middle of that PT CrossFit style workout about halfway through. Maybe we do a fence and back and I start running and I feel like, like shit. I feel so bad. And I come back, I was the last student and usually I'm like middle of the pack, maybe a little towards the front on these sprints. Cause I'm I'm pretty fast, so I can. I was able to kind of use the sprints as like a time when I could almost rest because I could kind of stay with the middle of the pack and then not be as gassed as someone else that had to like really push. But I was like actually pushing and I was towards the back of the pack. So I knew it was going to be a bad day. And the instructors kind of noticed it immediately. Like they saw that I was towards the back and they knew that it wasn't normally towards the back. So they, I think what they thought was I, I wasn't really giving it like 100% effort on that day, which completely valid like I totally get that but it's not true I was going all out I just had a bad weekend I guess I was having a bad recovery from the weekend and they noticed that and then we get back and they immediately like have us do another fence and back just because I was like because they thought I was slacking so that kind of started the whole downward spiral so at that point I'm I'm back of the pack on the second out and back and we're getting back into the workout and I'm extra smoked from that run. So my workout's going really bad. And they keep having to do fencing backs because my workout's going bad. And it just kept going on. And then 
after that workout, we got in the pool and I was just feeling bad in the pool too. I was going slow towards the back of the pack again. And the instructors just continued to, to rail me and just kept the pressure on. And I felt this was a Wednesday morning. So that was just like probably like one of the biggest tests as far as like whether I wanted to quit or not. I, I know I talk about it another time in week three when we had this bobbing drill mixed with brick treading where I almost quit. But this one was was more mental. This one was far more mental. That one was like kind of physical. This one was instructors really working their their magic or their skill set trying to kind of test my breaking point and see if I would quit just based on whether I was having a bad day or not. So that's my breaking point theory and you can see that any way you want, I guess, but just know it's out there and if you find yourself in a similar similar situation in a school or whatever training you're in, just know that it doesn't mean that you don't have what it takes or you're going to fail at some point. It just means it might just mean the instructors want to see if you would quit or maybe they think you're really strong and they want to kind of psych you out to to make you think you're weak. And if the instructors can do that to you based on what they're saying to you or what they're making you do, then you're not mentally tough enough to get through school anyways. So that's one of those things you can change instantly by just knowing what's going on, where the fact that you know the instructors might be doing that, if you just decide that it's not going to affect you, then you almost by default, you are mentally strong enough to get through it. All right, so I'm going to move on to some more stuff. I was kind of cruising the Reddit Rescue Swimmer page earlier today. And I talked about this, like, I think last week. But there's tons of questions that I've gone through before and and answered. And I posted on there, too, earlier to a couple days ago. Just letting everyone know about the podcast. So if you're ever on the page, just go ahead and give that one a... I guess like an up arrow. I don't know Reddit that well, but it gets like upvotes, I guess. There were some cool ones. Oh, here's a question. Do billets still exist for ASTs and polar ops? And it looks like no one answered it. And I don't know a ton about this, but a few years ago, basically polar ops is, there's this icebreaker that goes up to like the Arctic Circle kind of, and they do like, they bring scientists and stuff and do research and they do ice breaking for different shipping routes and all kinds of stuff like that. It's pretty cool. I was never really into it. I hate being cold, so I would never be into something like that. But we had a, I think there was like a solicit like through like through the email list, the swimmer email list asking for swimmers who wanted to go on a deployment like that. So I don't think there's a billet for it, but I know swimmers have been on deployments like that. And it's, I, I mean, that was a few years ago, so it seems like they still do that. So if you're listening to this, there's your answer. What happened? Here's another one right below it. Looks like a Navy candidate submitted this. What happens at Rescue Swimmer School when you're not in the pool? So obviously I can't answer what the Navy folks are up to in between their pool sessions, but I'll answer it for swimmers. But basically, like I said, you do your PT in the morning. Usually right after that, you go into the pool, do a pool workout till lunch. And then a lot of times in the afternoon, you'll come back and you'll hit the classroom. So you'll do some form of 
instructor lecture where they'll talk about survival techniques. They'll talk about some of the equipment you'd be working on as a rescue swimmer or AST, aviation survival technician. Um, I think we did like some nutrition stuff too. Don't quote me on that. That might've changed. I'm sure they do some sort of nutrition stuff at this point, just because it's so important to recovery, you know, and building muscle and being your best self. So a lot of times they have instructors that are really knowledgeable in, in those topics and will lecture you for a couple hours or take you to another part of the air station or not air station, but the schoolhouse and they'll have some sort of demonstration set up and you'll maybe you'll practice working on a inflatable life raft or something that you'd find in a helicopter. And sometimes I know we would do like one or two mornings when we were kind of in our normal routine at school, we would do some, I think it was called like regeneration. So you go to the, the gym and you do some foam rolling, stretching. And initially the instructors kind of went through a couple, They for the first few days they would go with you and show you kind of some of the stretches you should do for recovery and foam roll. But just know that I'm sure this is well known, but sometimes you go or you have a regeneration thing scheduled and then the instructors decide they want to put you in the classroom or they want to PT you instead. So that's one of the, the hard parts about A-School is that uncertainty where even though you have a somewhat, I guess this is like in quotes, so like a, a formal or a daily schedule, it can change at any moment. And it's part of the, it's it's one of the things in school that, one of the things that make passing the school so hard is that mental kind of that mental roller coaster of you don't really know what's coming next, even though you think you do because there's a schedule, you really don't know what's coming. And I know a lot of like guys who went through buds talk about that too. Like you just sometimes it's like, have you go to bed after a long day? And then at, like 20 minutes later, they wake you up and you're doing another four hours of PT. You just don't know what's coming. We don't do that stuff in rescue summer school. We, I have a little more set schedule than that just because we're not combat oriented. So oftentimes you're not going to be, we're not fighting a war. So you have a set schedule at work and you're on duty for 24 hours. So you kind of know your sleep schedule and you know that you're going to have a certain amount of rest before you have to go do a search and rescue mission. So there's no need to kind of like do all that sleep deprivation stuff that the combat oriented jobs do. Cause people ask that a lot. They ask like, do they do any sleep deprivation and stuff in A school? And they don't because it's not necessary for the job. A lot of people ask really like technical questions about security clearances and stuff on this page. And those are always hard to answer. Like they're very specific sometimes and they're, they're kind of nuanced. So a lot of times you'd have to ask a recruiter, stuff like that. And if you ever want to talk to a recruiter, like the Coast Guard sets it up really easy where you can go to their website and they have a chat feature, just like a Facebook chat thing where you can talk to someone pretty much at any time and they'll just send you a quick response or they'll get you in contact with the right person. Here's a Marine wanting to transfer. So I guess he wants to transfer out of the Marines, become a swimmer in the Coast Guard. Good choice. I know a couple guys, there was a guy at my unit who was a 
he was in the army before before switching over and going through summer school and becoming a swimmer. He's a good guy. And I know there's a lot of, a few others who have done that, but that's the only person I know that that's done it. Retired ASTs. What's life like these days? What do you do for work now? Any regrets about time spent as an AST? What career paths were you interested in after your service career, if any? So obviously I'm not retired. I was only a swimmer for four years and I was in the Coast Guard for six. But I guess I can kind of answer some of these. Even though I didn't spend 20 years and I spent four as a swimmer. But life after the Coast Guard is what you make of it. And if you're if you're the guy the kind of person that goes through swimmer school, graduates, gets their job and just kind of stagnates or like you won't find anyone that does that. Like if you're the kind of person who can pass rescue swimmer school, you're a pretty ambitious person and you tend to be motivated. So often I think what you're going to find if you pass this or if you talk to other swimmers or other guys who pass really hard training in any service, they like kind of brush it off and they'll talk about what they're up to next. So like the second I passed, I didn't even, it felt normal. And I was just like, what's next? And I'm sure that's a story with most people. And for me, my what's next was not Coast Guard related. So I just, I knew that a couple years after getting qualified and I just moved on. And some people some people decide their what's next can coexist with being in the Coast Guard and that's fine for them. So it really just depends on what your overall life goals are and what you value. What do you do for work now? I know a lot of swimmers who work for the various life support systems kind of technologies where they, it's a very similar job. So as a rescue swimmer, a lot of times you're doing that life-saving systems, equipment, maintenance. So we work on, we do a lot of sewing. We do maintenance on life rafts, stuff like that. Minor repairs on, you can do minor repairs on life rafts and stuff, but a lot of times we would have to, if there's a big issue with a life raft or something that couldn't be done in shop due to like time constraints or just too technical, we'd send it off to an, the company who makes it. And those companies a lot of times have retired rescue swimmers who work there and they do they do like that extra technical stuff. So those skills that you learn as a swimmer can be built on and you can go work for a company that does stuff like that. I know other swimmers who, I don't know them personally, I just heard of swimmers who have retired and then they go do inspections on big cruise ships and ships for, for safety and they'll look at their life-saving systems, their PFDs, they have all these like government standards for a certain amount of life rafts and PFDs you got to keep on the boat. And those guys can go in, or girls can go in and do the inspection and sign it off. And I, I know those pay pretty well. I, I think they're all government jobs, but I'm not 100%. Those are, the boat inspections are. But the the other stuff is private industry, the, the life-saving stuff. There's a big one in, I think it's in Tampa, Florida, called Life-Saving Systems. And they, they're the ones we buy, like, our rescue baskets from. We buy... I think they make the fins or there's the supplier for the fins, the mask, all that stuff. They do a lot. 
So if you're interested in that kind of stuff after your swimmer, there are, there are career paths you can take that are related to being an AST. I didn't join the Coast Guard and go through swimmer school with the intent on getting out and doing a job related to that kind of work. I just knew it, it was something I wanted to do. And then if I enjoyed the job enough, I would just stay in and be a swimmer for my 20 years. And if I didn't and I had other goals, I would just get out. But I never really planned on using it as a career path to build towards something related. But some people do. Some people don't. It doesn't really matter. Just do what you want to do. And then the last part of that question is what career paths were you interested in after service, after your service, if any, or before? So I, I guess part of the reason I joined the Coast Guard was I wasn't really, I didn't really have a set career path that I wanted to take. So I like, I dropped out of college after my first year and joined the Coast Guard. And I was hoping that the Coast Guard could almost act like a, it's like a, a buffer between you and your future career goals. So Maybe you're hoping in that time you either find the career you want or you have enough time to think about it while you're being productive. And then over that those four to six years, you can figure out a career path that you, that you do want to do. Just scrolling through this Reddit page a little more, see if there's any other good questions. Medical, flight, flight physical questions. Any flight physical stuff is... I get those sometimes and I just like, I tell them to, I tell whoever's asking to go talk to a recruiter just because those are all just, I can't answer those. You have to be a doctor and you like the waiver process is very intricate and it requires a lot of signatures and has nothing to do with me and I wouldn't know anything about it. How to prevent injury in the pool. Oh, I don't have an internet connection right now, so. I can't click on this question. Maybe I'll come back to it next time. Someone asked, asked about rucking. How much rucking do ASTs do? So rucking is when you fill up basically a, a big backpack full of weight and walk around with it. We don't really do that because we're not, in, we're not combat. We're not rucking anywhere in the, in the field. So what you're doing is search and rescue. So if there's a boat sinking, you're going out to the boat, swimming up to the boat, grabbing the people or doing your EMT, doing some sort of EMT service on them and then hoisting them up and leaving. So we don't ever have to do any rucking. Sometimes, maybe if you're a swimmer station in Alaska, you could do some mountain rescue where you have to hike up to a, like maybe a plane that crashed or some missing hikers, but that's about the most you would do and maybe be carrying like your EMT equipment, but rucking really isn't necessary for, for the job. Increasing my pushups for AST school. That's another question that came through. That is what I do. So if you're listening to this and you ask that, go to my website, rsmguide.com and check out my training. But in general, if you want to increase your pushups, you got to do more pushups. And the way to do that is you got to increase your volume and you want to do this at a, at a manageable rate. So you got to pick a training block. So maybe four to five weeks, schedule out some training where you do push-ups three to four times a week. And throughout that week you're doing, you can do PT put like push-up 
sit-up or push-up pull-up pyramids where you're doing three push-ups, one pull-up, then you do six push-ups, two pull-ups, nine push-ups, three pull-ups, and you go up to however many. Maybe if you're not really good at push-ups, maybe you go up to like 12 or 15, and you go back down that. So you go up the pyramid, top out at 15, then back down. And you're not really resting between sets. You're just kind of going nonstop. And if you want to make it harder, you can add in a core portion to that. So you can do you can do three push-ups, one pull-up, five flutter kicks. And then you double it each time for each exercise. Another good one is to say, like, I want to get 300 push-ups. Or if you're weak at push-ups, so say I want to get 100, 120 push-ups and 120 flutter kicks and 20 pull-ups in during this workout. So you break them into break them up into sets however many you can get in at a manageable rate so do like five bang out five to ten push-ups bang out two to three pull-ups bang out 10 to 20 flutter kicks and just continue through that and the only time you do your breaks is when you're getting water so that gets your heart rate up and gets you getting high getting a high volume of those core pt requirements or your push-ups in relatively fast and that's a good way to increase your push-ups quickly if you start to plateau and you're like, say you're like maxing out at like 45 push-ups and you've been doing stuff like that already, you might need to add a little bit of weight training to build up those muscles a bit. And then you kind of dial back the volume on push-ups for a bit and then you kind of go back into it and you'll, you'll see those kind of increases that you want to see. So that's it for the Reddit page. Maybe I'll come back to that next week. I kind of like going through those questions and giving some quick answers. Like I said, a lot of it, The medical stuff is always just kind of variable depending on who you are and the various differences in physiology. So for the past few months, I've been dealing with this stress fracture in my tibia and it's kind of affected my running. So I've been kind of taking time off from that. I've been doing a lot of rock climbing and... I've still been keeping up on my kind of PT numbers. I've been doing a lot of PT workouts, maybe like two to three PT workouts per week with two to three lifting days per week, where I'm pretty much working on the same stuff I used to work on while training to be a swimmer. Now I'm just kind of adding and switching up kind of my focus as to my goal. And now my goal is kind of to get stronger for rock climbing and running. So it's kind of led me to looking at different research on various supplements and stuff and if you follow me on instagram you saw i think over the weekend i posted a question asking if or asking how many people kind of use supplements for recovery or for their workouts and i forgot to post the results i don't think you can just see them in real time i think i was supposed to post something to show but it was about 50 50 so out of everyone that answered half of them use them half don't and I found this, this wasn't really surprising. I was pretty, pretty much thinking that was about it. And when I was training to be a swimmer, I didn't use any supplements. I briefly, when I was a non-rate in the Keys, I tried some of those like caffeine pre-workout things and I didn't really like them. They're, they're really strong and caffeine definitely does not help with pool workouts because your heart rate gets too high and you need a low heart rate for for being able to get through a lot of underwater and water confidence drills. 
So I didn't like them. Maybe you, maybe you do like them and they work for you, but I doubt it. A one for, if you're doing like land workouts and want to get a little bit of extra power or if you're, if you're lifting or something, stuff like that can work. But I always find that just like drinking like a cup of coffee works best because it's not too much caffeine. It's a little more natural also. Didn't take any protein powders or anything, but recently I've been just kind of experimenting and fi- trying to figure out what works for me. So I ran across this study, basic or a few studies, but it was about creatine supplementation and performance for. So this specific study was the effect and safety of short short-term creatine supplementation on performance of push-ups, and it was an army study done. Looks like about or in March of 2007. So it's a little dated, but I figured I'd run through this study and just kind of talk about it. So the U.S. Army, basically, they wanted to test whether creatine supplementation helped with push-up performance for their their PT test. And for their PT test, it looks like you get two minutes to do your your max push-ups. And it looks like they had a group that received five grams of creatine and then another group that received five grams of a control, so just placebo. And throughout the experiment, they found that there was no impact on your push-up performance and creatine consumption. But then I read through the rest of the study and basically the study was done over the course of like creatine consumption over the course of a couple weeks and they immediately took the push-up test. So it was overall, it was just a bad experiment and I don't think I got anything out of it. So whoever did the experiment, I think they were just bored because trying to find, and there was only 16 people in the, the study. So it's not even a big sample size. So if you ever come across that army study, I don't think it's much to, I wouldn't write home about it. And I don't think I'd even use anything they found as evidence for or against taking creatine. So if you didn't know, creatine is synthesized in your liver and stored in your muscles. So you can find creatine in basically all meat that you eat. So like I think a pound of beef has like roughly five grams of creatine in it. So you can actually get it through a well-balanced diet with the proper types of proteins. But you can also buy it in supplement form and take kind of a higher dose of it in hopes that you gain some extra basically muscle power or you can kind of recover a little quicker in between bursts bursts of of muscle exertion so creatine binds with a i think it'd be called a phosphate ion and becomes phosphocreatine and when you add adp and a hydrogen ion you get atp and atp is the sort of the energy source for muscle contraction. So I guess it goes, basically your supply of PCR or your phosphate creatine or phosphocreatine is limited in your body. So a depletion is considered a major factor in fatigue. So if you increase your level of phosphocreatine in your system, you will have less fatigue. I guess that's kind of the the idea there. 
And I've been reading through a ton of studies and trying to figure out if there's any kind of conclusive conclusive evidence that says that yes, this is beneficial or no, it's not. There's a lot of of people that say creatine dehydrates you, so it's bad for endurance athletes. And I've been reading through different studies and I find that that's not necessarily always true, but it is true sometimes. So basically what I'm saying is I'm doing a ton of research right now. And when I get everything kind of compiled, that's how you say that word, compiled, I will do an episode on it and just talk about it. And of course, I'm not a doctor. I don't even have a college degree yet. I will in a few months, but there's enough studies out there to, it looks like for me to kind of formulate a pretty educated opinion on it. And I'm actually kind of testing it out right now on myself for my, to increase my climbing strength. Because I've heard that you get some weight or mass increase, I guess. So you'll, you'll gain like three to five pounds from taking it on a schedule, but you do have some significant strength strength increases that come with it and the kind of store of the phosphocreatine which I was talking about earlier is a major factor in fatigue levels so if I can increase that I'm thinking maybe I can increase the ability of or increase my ability to climb harder and rest less so we'll see if it works I'm kind of being the guinea pig on myself for climbing and I'm going to continue doing research and I'm going to compile everything and do an episode on it. So if you're interested in supplementation uh, with creatine and it's a f- the effects of that on your training, look out for that episode. Hopefully I'll have it done in the next couple weeks. And that's all I really wanted to talk about today. So with this new format, the next episode will come out on Friday. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, go to the Apple podcast page and leave a rating and review. If you're interested in any of the training programs that I offer, go to rsmguide.com, go to the upper right-hand corner, or if you're on your phone, you can click on the those three little lines in the upper right-hand corner and then scroll down or click on products. And you'll see, there's only two programs I have right now. It's the intro program, which is for someone who cannot currently pass the minimum PT requirements. So if you can't do more than 40 to 50 push-ups, if you can't do more than five pull-ups or four, four or five pull-ups, if your runtime is slower than, if your runtime is slower than 10.30, I would say you're part of that group probably. If your swim time is over 10 minutes and you can't do any underwater laps, that training is for you. It's a 10-week program that'll slowly build up your fitness in a controlled fashion to get those PT times up and or down and your water confidence up to where it needs to be to be in good shape to start a more more rigorous training program and then the base builder program is is that rigorous program that's designed to pick up where the 10-week intro training left off and that is a program structured it's eight weeks and it's structured to get you to the conditioning the physical conditioning level that you need to be in to go to rescue swimmer school and there's a good mix of water confidence in there it's not 50 50 i would say the water confidence is probably 15 to 20 percent of the program maybe 15 percent 
it's mostly physical condition physical conditioning with some water confidence thrown in there so that's all i have for today and i will talk to you on friday be good